and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, psychiatrist Dr. Scott Bay, with all the latest mental health-related news, including anything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to make sense of media reports, and to the latest research looking into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness, all that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources, with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, and along the way trying to better inform the general public about mental health issues, as well as reducing the stigma of having a mental health diagnosis. And <clears throat> welcome back to the show, folks. And uh, this show is being pre-recorded as always and it will air for the first time on Wednesday November the 12th so hopefully you've been feeling well since then and uh, hopefully you find the show helpful in terms of picking up some tips for better mental health now <clears throat> since we last got together there was Election Day. Actually, Election Day took place the day before last week's show aired, but since the show is pre-recorded, did not get a chance to talk to you about that. And interestingly enough, I came across an article about some research into the emotional reactions of the results of Election Day. And I thought it appropriate to bring that to you. Is Election Day, in fact, the saddest day of the year? Well, Election Day is at least difficult for many political candidates, right? But it's no picnic for their supporters either. A new study, and this comes to us from the Washington University in St. Louis, shows just how tough Election Days can be. The study finds that winning elections barely improves the happiness of those from the winning political party and that losing reduces self-reported happiness and increases sadness substantially. The study is called Losing Hurts Partisan Happiness in the 2012 Presidential Election, which is what was studied in order to come up with their conclusions. And it was published in the Harvard Kennedy School Research Working Paper Series. The researchers used thousands of daily online survey responses from Civic Science, a market research and data intelligence company, to compare the happiness and sadness reported by those who identify with political parties in the days surrounding the 2012 presidential election. The sadness effect lasted for about a week, but eventually partisan losers recovered. One of their main findings is that the pain of losing the 2012 presidential election dominated the joy of winning it. In other words, what I think what they're saying is the people who were happy about the results uh, that was outweighed by the pain of those who were unhappy. The asymmetry 
the researchers observed between winning and losing is in line with past research on happiness in that bad things tend to hurt more and last longer than comparable good things. To benchmark exactly how intense the pain of election losses can be, the researchers employed the same methodology used on the election data to study the effects of two national tragedies, the 2012 school shooting in Newtown, Connecticut, and the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing. They looked at the impact uh, uh, on those situations on Americans' emotions using the same method. Now, despite the highly traumatic nature of these two events, the results indicated that the sadness increase and happiness decrease that followed reflected only half the effect of an election loss on partisans, with two notable exceptions. Respondents who had children who were distinctly less happy and more sad after the Newtown shooting, and Boston residents who responded similarly after the marathon bombing. <clears throat> that is to say, they found that the effect of an election loss in terms of the depth and duration of sadness was worse than the response to those two tragedies. Rather impressive, I think. Now, prior research has shown that partisan identity shapes social, mental, economic, and physical life. This new research shows that it can have intense effects on identity and well-being. <clears throat> they find that partisan identity is even more central to the self than past research might have suggested, in addition to affecting thinking, preferences, and behavior. It also has sizable effects on ability to feel happy, especially when people experience partisan losses. Well, certainly I would expect uh, those of you with Democratic leadings to be pretty down about last week's election results, given uh, <clears throat> the positive results Republicans have had. But regardless of your leaning, and regardless of whether your candidate won or lost, I have a little bit of advice for people who get too caught up in politics and politicians in terms of their happiness or sadness. If you've been intensely miserable going through two terms of President Obama, or if you had been intensely miserable going two terms with President Bush preceding President Obama, here's my advice to you. It's better that you not focus so much on politics and politicians and your state capital or Washington if it's going to have that drastic an effect on your psyche. The fact is that most people tend to overestimate what they do and how much of a bearing it has on their day-to-day -day lives. Uh, and the fact remains that like any other situation, that someone has making them upset. 
there is a logical, sensible way to approach whether it should really make you that upset or not. And that is to just look at a few basic things about the situation. Is it something that you can change? Is it something that you can have any effect on at all? Well, maybe you think you can, right? So did you vote? Great. Did you participate in a campaign? Great, even better. Uh, did you call or write a candidate? Did you contribute to uh, a candidate's campaign or cause? Okay, so if you did any or all those things, great. You did what you could. It didn't turn out the way you wanted. It's time to move on. Or if you feel like any or all of those contributions that you could have made or effects you could have had were beyond what you can handle, or you chose not to, then again, it's like, okay, it's disappointing, but again, time to move on, focus on other things. And I also highly recommend against watching intense TV coverage of politics and politicians for those who have such strong reactions that it actually causes them a great deal of psychic distress. You can stay well informed uh, by reading newspaper articles, but to watch TV coverage, which goes on and on repetitively and with a lot of screaming and yelling and talking heads, spewing venom, this is only going to add to your stress and frustration with the situation. And uh, I, I think, again, if it's affecting your mental health that much, you are better off not watching it. Instead, focused on, focus on print media where you read the information. It's finite. It's not accompanied by the, the screaming, the talking heads, and stirring up uh, all these emotions and so on and so forth. Uh, so, again, I think that's good advice for anyone who finds themselves too wrapped up in an issue uh, such that it is affecting their mental well-being. Uh, but again, you know, if um, you choose not to and you choose to focus on those things intently uh, and it makes you angry, upset, frustrated, sad, whatever, uh, that's to your detriment. And I hope that uh, people who react that way wouldn't make such a bad choice. Uh, but if they do make such a choice, it's uh, it's on them, and they have only themselves to blame. Uh, <clears throat> so that's my take for whatever it's worth on elections, election day, politicians. Um, best bet, again, do your d- civic duty, at least vote. And uh, if you feel that strongly about it, you know, there are a lot of other things you can do to participate If it turns out the way you want it to, great, much more power to you. If it doesn't, try not to focus on it too much and move on. All right, well, next up on Psychiatry Today. There have been so many theories of what causes ADHD, and a lot of things have been accused of playing a role in increasing the risk of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder in children. Uh, Theories like childhood vaccines have been debunked. Nonetheless, uh, that very ignorant belief persists, despite the fact that science has disproved it over and over again. And then you have 
other theories such as that it's being diagnosed too often, especially in affluent areas. It's very difficult, it's very frustrating that uh, parents of kids with ADHD you know, really don't know where this comes from, except that there appears to be genetic connections, strongly runs in families. But here's a new study that potentially may show a direct link to breathing dirty air during pregnancy. That's right. Could it be that air pollution is a causative factor for having kids with ADHD? We're going to look at that study when we come back from this commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because I believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individualized. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing or your child has frequent throat infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you'll be treated as an individual, not an ailment. During your visit, you'll not be rushed, and all of your questions will be answered. And when possible, I will recommend natural treatments to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients, dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Psychiatrist Dr. Scott Bay here on America's Web Radio. And now I'd like to explore with you a study that potentially shows a link between a woman being subjected to polluted air during pregnancy and a greater likelihood of having a child with, born with ADHD. Prenatal exposure to Polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, or PAH, a component of air pollution, raises the odds of behavior problems associated with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or ADHD, at age 9. That, according to researchers, 
at the Columbia Center for Children's Environmental Health. Now, results were published online in the journal PLOS One. The researchers followed 233 non-smoking pregnant women and their children in New York City from pregnancy into childhood and found that children born to mothers exposed to high levels of these polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons during pregnancy had five times the odds of a higher than usual number and degree of symptoms that characterize ADHD, specifically inattentive type ADHD at age nine, compared with children whose mothers did not have high polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbon exposure. The study is the first to explore the connection between prenatal exposure to these pollutants and ADHD in school-age children over time. Now, they refer to the inattentive type of ADHD. I want to go over that with you. The term ADD actually is outdated and is no longer used, has not been for many years, although in common parlance it persists. The current terminology is ADHD, which stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, and then you have three subtypes, the inattentive only type, which is the one they're talking about in this study, the hyperactive impulsive type, and then the combined type, which has features including inattentiveness and hyperactive impulsive behavior. <clears throat> and again, the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, or PAH for short, we'll say, that was associated with an increased risk of the inattentive type ADHD by age nine. The findings are concerning because attention problems, of course, impact school performance, but also social relationships and occupational performance. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Atlanta estimates that around 10% of American children ages four to 17 have ADHD in one of the three types, the inattentive ADHD in which children have a hard time focusing and are easily distracted and disorganized, the hyperactive and impulsive ADHD or the combination. And little is known about what causes ADHD, but in addition to genetic factors, environmental factors are known to or at least suspected of playing a role. PAH are toxic air pollutants generated by many sources such as vehicle traffic, residential boilers, and electricity generating plants using fossil fuels. Researchers measured levels of maternal PAH exposure using PAH DNA adducts in maternal blood obtained at delivery. So really it was a measure in the pregnant woman's blood at the time of delivery. And then they checked childhood PAH exposure by measuring the PAH metabolites in urine at age three or age five. <clears throat> and then they measured the ADHD 
behavior problems using the well-known Connors parent rating scale. Recurrent findings build on the Centers for Disease Control's previous studies linking prenatal PAH exposure with behavioral and cognitive issues, including associations with developmental delays at age three, reduced IQ at age five, and symptoms of anxiety and depression and attention problems at ages six and seven. The mechanism by which this PAH exposure increases the likelihood of ADHD is not fully understood, but the research paper lists several possibilities, including the disruption of the endocrine system, DNA damage, oxidative stress, and interference with placental growth factors, resulting in decreased exchange of oxygen and nutrients between the maternal and the fetal circulation. Although more research is needed to fully understand this relationship, the researchers say these results are of concern since children with ADHD are at greater risk for risk-taking behaviors, poor academic performance, and lower earnings. Moreover, ADHD imposes large annual costs to society, estimated between $36 and $52 billion in the United States and to individuals, estimated to be $12,005 to $17,458. <clears throat> Love to know where they come up with numbers that specific, but... The negative consequences later in life for ADHD are well known. Again, it isn't just about interfering with academic performance, um, <clears throat> although that is a certainly a big issue. You'll often see that kids with ADHD uh, either do not finish college, or if they ever get there at all, or they take quite a bit longer to get through it than most people. <clears throat> then later on in life, people with ADHD tend to have a greater likelihood of substance abuse. And uh, this is often surprising to people when they hear that because you think of the medications used to treat ADHD, both in childhood and adulthood. Uh, they are very strong amphetamine-like stimulant drugs, which if someone does not have ADHD, uh, are widely misused recreationally. But nonetheless, not treating ADHD increases the risk of abuse of alcohol and drugs later in life. Uh, there is also higher incidence of other types of legal problems, uh, traffic tickets, car accidents uh, are much more common typically because of the tendency to be distracted while driving. Uh, it affects relationships. People with ADHD sometimes, unfortunately, can be frustrating to live with. There are high rates of divorce and relationship satisfaction. And uh, <clears throat> job situation uh, can be compromised by ADHD. Someone 
is not able to focus on their job, easily distracted at work. It's quite common for people with ADHD to have a very spotty work history, always moving around to different jobs. And some of that isn't always being let go for poor performance because of distractedness. Some of it is losing interest quickly uh, in doing a certain job and then wanting to move on to something else. Uh, so all those things, uh, difficult relationship history, difficult vocational history, legal history, substance abuse, these are all common results uh, in adulthood of a kid having ADHD. So if researchers could nail down what are the prenatal risk factors for developing it, that would be huge. Now, it's all well and good if it turns out follow-up data show that this link between these PAH pollutants and developing uh, ADHD is confirmed, but then what do you do? I mean, it's not as if women who live in an environment where there's a lot of air pollution can just say, well, if I'm going to get pregnant or now that I'm pregnant, I have to leave. Uh, so clearly, finding the link is one thing. Finding the solution to it, of course, quite another. Well, <clears throat> this next article caught my eye because as a psychiatrist, I certainly prescribe a lot of antidepressants in my practice. It's clearly most of what I prescribe to my patients who need help with medication for depression, for anxiety, and other mental health issues. So I came across this article, Six Little-Known Uses for Antidepressants. And I thought that this would be useful for a number of reasons, broadly to educate the public on how antidepressants are used, other than simply to prescribe them for treating depression. And then also, I thought maybe some of you who are listening to the show are taking medication for one or more of these little-known reasons. Or perhaps you have a family member or someone else close to you who's taking an antidepressant for one of these other reasons, and it would just benefit you to know and understand what is going on in case there was ever any question about, hmm, why exactly is this medication being prescribed? So let's take a look at this article that makes the point that if you're taking an antidepressant, there's a fair chance it's not necessarily for depression. Now, first of all, one thing I want to mention that the article doesn't necessarily go into because it's fairly obvious, antidepressants are prescribed for anxiety, not just for depression. And this is a very common misconception, a common mix-up, unfortunately, that people have. Someone comes to see a doctor such as myself for help with anxiety, and we prescribe an antidepressant to treat their anxiety, but sometimes the patient will say, well, why are you giving me an antidepressant? I'm not depressed, I'm anxious. Well, the term antidepressant is confusing for that reason. But in reality, they're just very versatile drugs. And antidepressants treat anxiety even if there is zero depression whatsoever. Ideally, they should be called something else, but we're kind of stuck with the name antidepressant. So hopefully that is not going to be confusing to you. 
We will take another commercial break here and get back to the article about six little-known uses for antidepressants and more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is Dr. George from Peachtree ENT Center. Understanding health insurance is becoming more challenging. If you currently have insurance, you've probably noticed that it costs more to see your doctor. And if you were able to keep your doctor, it takes longer to get an appointment. The bad news is this trend is projected to continue. Your costs will continue to rise while your health care choice and access will continue to fall. The good news is Peachtree ENT Center has the answer to this problem. We are committed to working with you. We specialize in providing affordable care for patients without insurance, those who are underinsured, and those with high deductibles or catastrophic coverage. And we offer same-day appointments. You no longer have to choose between staying healthy and paying bills because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio. And next up on the show, six little-known uses for antidepressants, which are quite versatile medications. We talked before the break about how they treat anxiety as well as depression. But according to recent data released by the National Center for Health Statistics, antidepressants are the third most common prescription taken by Americans. However, not all these drugs are administered to patients for depression and anxiety, nor does a psychiatrist always prescribe them. Instead, antidepressants are often recommended to patients by primary care physicians and are used to treat a surprising assortment of non-psychological and non-psychiatric conditions. The article doesn't say so, but in fact, I would say 70 to 80 percent of the antidepressants prescribed in this country are prescribed by non-psychiatric physicians, which shocks a lot of people when they hear that. Uh, A lot of people think, well, shouldn't that be mostly prescribed by psychiatrists, the ones who are most expert treating mental illness and using those medications and ideally that's true it should be but the problem is there are too few psychiatrists far fewer than are really necessary to treat the degree of mental illness there is out there and all too often those of us who are there are overwhelmed and seeing so many patients already that they may have stopped taking new patients or as a practical matter it takes too long to get an appointment to see one. And so that's why you have primary care physicians and that would include uh, internal medicine, family practice, OBGYNs prescribe a lot of antidepressants for women, uh, pediatricians for children and adolescents, as few psychiatrists as there are in general 
there are uh, is even a worse shortage of child and adolescent psychiatrists than there is for adult psychiatrists. So you have a lot of other physicians besides psychiatrists prescribing these medications. And antidepressants are often prescribed off-label. Now, off-label means they're being used in a way not specified in the Food and Drug Administration approved packaging label. The packaging label, if you've ever gotten an official bottle of a medicine right from the manufacturer and there's this white piece of paper folded a dozen or more times with incredibly tiny print and incomprehensibly technical language, that's the package insert. It has the list of all the horrible side effects that that medication might cause. So in any case, if the use of the drug specified in that label is one thing and you're using it for something else, that's off-label use, which is not illegal or inappropriate or unethical. But if a doctor is going to prescribe an antidepressant or any other medication for such an off-label use, uh, there better be substantial agreement in the community that this is rendering appropriate care and preferably some medical research to document that the medication does work for that purpose, even though the FDA never officially approved it. <clears throat> and again, just because a medication is being used off-label does not mean it's being used experimentally. In many cases, it is the community standard. So from insomnia to irritable bowel treatment, here's a list of some of the most common and unexpected uses for antidepressants. Sleep is the first one. This is probably the most common additional use for certain antidepressants. Sleep is always a tricky thing, especially these days when everything is so 24-7 an antidepressant medication that can be used for sleep, specifically trazodone, is probably one of the better ones out there. Trazodone, which used to go under the old brand name Deserel, was originally designed as an antidepressant. And in fact, it really is first and foremost an antidepressant. It was used as such. And right up until the newer generation of antidepressants came out when Prozac appeared on the scene in 1987 or 1988. Prior to that, we were still using Deserel to treat depression and anxiety. But with the advent of the newer generation of medications that are far less sedating and easier to take during the day without feeling drowsy or groggy, Medications like trazodone became relegated to just using small doses at bedtime to act as a safer, non-addictive substitute for otherwise addictive and dangerous sleeping pills. <clears throat> now, due to the nature of trazodone, people had to take it in very high doses for it to effectively combat depression and anxiety. Uh, so, <clears throat> you know, back in 
the time when trazodone was being used by itself for depression, you could see people on two, three, four, or five, up to 600 milligrams a day, which uh, would usually make patients quite sedated. Low doses, however, can induce sleep, more on the order of 50, 100, 150 milligrams. <clears throat> Nowadays, trazodone is most often prescribed off-label for insomnia, and unlike other sleep aids, it's not a benzodiazepine like Ativan or Xanax or Clonopin or Valium uh, or Restoril or Dalmain, and it's not a narcotic like, well, strictly speaking, Ambien and Lunesta aren't narcotics, but they're considered controlled substances just the same, uh, which means they have some abuse potential. So, trazodone is not addicting, not habit-forming. I tell people who are concerned, they take it every night to sleep, that just look at it comparably to that they take their morning antidepressant most of the time, every day to sleep. What I mean is most of the time, people who take trazodone at night for sleep are on something else for anxiety or depression in the morning. And that might be Prozac or Lexapro or Zoloft or some of the newer things like Vibrid or Fetsima, and they take trazodone at night to help them sleep. So taking trazodone every night is your nighttime antidepressant, just like you take an antidepressant during the day. But even if you don't take something during the day, taking it every night certainly is not habit-forming or addicting. Uh, again, because it is an antidepressant, not a sedative hypnotic drug. <clears throat> now, trazodone is not the only old generation antidepressant used to help with sleep. There's also one called amitriptyline, which uh, once went under the brand name Elevil, is also used for sleep. It is very sedating, like trazodone. Patients take a low dosage of it for insomnia, uh, whereas in the past, a higher dosage was necessary to treat depression. And there is another antidepressant, which is not nearly as old, but is also used to help with sleep, and it's called mirtazapine, which once went under the brand name Remeron. Now, that one has more of a histamine-like effect, and <clears throat> at low doses, it makes people quite sleepy and drowsy. In higher doses, in some people, it may be somewhat less sedating, so it has kind of a backward effect in terms of raising the dose and the change in the side effects. <clears throat> but the big problem with Remeron, which the article doesn't mention, is it causes weight gain. I would say when I put someone on Remeron, if I do, which is not very often because who wants to gain weight, I tell the person, you're going to put on 10 to 15 pounds fairly quickly, but then after that, it'll probably stay the same. Now, if someone's had severe anxiety and depression and has lost way too much weight and is unhealthily thin and not sleeping, they're a perfect candidate for Remeron. But there are not many people you see 
uh, with that group of symptoms. So now what are some other uses for antidepressants that are off-label? Pain is another one. And we're not just talking about Cymbalta, which I know you're probably sick to death of having seen the ads for talking about Cymbalta and pain. They stopped the end of last year when Cymbalta became generic. So no, not only Cymbalta, although we will talk about it. It turns out a number of antidepressant medications are used to treat pain and are prescribed to patients with conditions including, but not limited to, headaches, chronic nerve pain, and fibromyalgia, which is a disorder that causes muscle aches and tiredness. These medications include tricyclic antidepressants, which are chemical compounds used as antidepressants, and they include things we've talked about before, like Elevil is a tricyclic. There's also Tofranil or Amipramine, uh, Pamelor or Nortriptyline, Norpramine or Desipramine, uh, Anaphranil or Clomipramine is also a tricyclic. Um, trazodone is considered a heterocyclic. It's related to the tricyclics, but uh, not quite in the same category. But in any case, they're used to treat pain, as are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which are a class of medicines that affect brain chemicals, serotonin, and uh, that includes Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, Luvox, Celexa, and Lexapro. And then finally, the serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, which regulate both of those two chemicals, and that's Effexor and Pristique, and Cymbalta, and Civella, and Fetzema. All right, we're going to take another commercial break here. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion of uses for antidepressants other than for depression and anxiety, and we'll have more after that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Did you miss the show? that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docs.com 
for patientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org, and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio. We're talking about additional uses for antidepressant medications other than to treat depression and anxiety. And of those, we're talking about pain. Now, in 2010, the Food and Drug Administration approved one serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor called duloxetine, which of course went by the brand name Cymbalta, to be used to treat pain. Specifically, it was approved for the use in treating pain from diabetic peripheral neuropathy. Later on, Cymbalta was approved for other types of pain, including lower back pain, uh, chronic pain from osteoarthritis, and pain from fibromyalgia. Lately, you're seeing and hearing a lot of ads for Lyrica for fibromyalgia. It is not an antidepressant. It is not quite an anticonvulsant, but it's more like an anticonvulsant than anything else. Now, when Cymbalta first came on the market, there was one other SNRI, a serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, out there. It was Effexor, uh, and the extended release capsule version of it, Effexor XR. Well, I got curious. I said, well, if, if Cymbalta can do this, shouldn't that mean that Effexor XR, which is in the same chemical class, and SNRI should be able to do this as well? So I contacted the medical division at the manufacturer of Effexor XR. At the time, that was Wyeth Pharmaceuticals. They were later bought by Pfizer. And of course, Cymbalto is made by Lilly Pharmaceuticals. So anyway, the bottom line is, of course, Effexor XR worked with pain too. Turns out Wyeth had data for pain for Effexor XR when it came to diabetic peripheral neuropathy, migraine, Not necessarily fibromyalgia, I don't think, but the point is, it's an SNRI. It also helped to treat pain. The difference is that Wyeth never bothered to pursue getting the FDA's approval to market their drug to treat pain. They focused on depression and then generalized anxiety, social anxiety, and panic disorder, but just didn't bother with the pain indication. Whereas Lily, right out of the gate, went for pain as well as depression. Now, it turns out that doctors have been using antidepressants off-label to treat pain for decades, even well before the newer drugs came out. Now, the article that... um, going over with you says doctors don't quite know why antidepressants treat pain. That is not true, and it was rather shocking to me that the authors of this article made that assertion, quite a howling error. We know exactly how they treat pain, and I'll get to that in a moment. But 
there's also the point that there's some degree of an emotional component to pain. If you're feeling more depressed, it's probably going to make your pain worse. It's going to make it a stronger sensation. Uh, so antidepressants are modulating in some capacity the way that your brain is actually processing the information simply by lifting your mood. But in terms of which drugs, you remember we talked about Elevil before, amitriptyline? Amitriptyline for years and years and years has been used to treat diabetic peripheral neuropathy pain. The first pain in indication that Cymbalta got from the FDA. And in fact, it's still used to treat that in some patients to this day. <clears throat> now, how do these medications help to treat pain? Well, it's really a very simple explanation. There's nothing particularly mysterious about it. SNRIs affect the reuptake of serotonin and norepinephrine. And by the way, Elevil does a lot, does those two things and a lot more. So you can think of it as a, sort of an ancient forerunner to the modern SNRIs. Well, it turns out the pain pathways in the spinal cord specifically uh, and technically the pathways in the spinal cord called the, spinal, the lateral spinothalamic tracts, that's where the pain messages travel from peripheral nerves uh, up the spinal cord into the brain. Now those pathways use serotonin and norepinephrine to transmit their messages. So that's why SNRIs help alleviate the experience of pain. It's not that they have a direct analgesic effect. Uh, it's that they modulate these pain pathways in the spinal cord in addition to where they work in the brain to help alleviate adverse symptoms of depression and anxiety. Now another off-label use for antidepressants is smoking cessation. In this case, though, we're really just talking about one medication, uh, that being Welbutrin. Uh, the generic or chemical name for Welbutrin is Bupropion. It is thought to be a norepinephrine and dopamine reuptake inhibitor, but fairly weak in both of those actions. <clears throat> when the smoking cessation indication for bupropion first came out in 1997, they sold the exact same drug under a different name than Welbutrin. When it was being prescribed for depression, and again this is back in 1997, it was called Welbutrin, as it always had been prior to that and still since then. But when prescribed to treat smoking cessation, it was called Zyban, and there was slightly different coloring and packaging. It was used to help people quit smoking, absent any depression whatsoever. So why the different name for exactly the same drug? Well, for better or for worse, the drug company's market research, and uh, the drug company was GlaxoSmithKline, they found that smokers did not want the stigma of being on an antidepressant drug, hence the different name. 
I think that's a lot of garbage. At the time, I asked smokers, and I still ask some of them to this day, would you care about being on an antidepressant drug if it helped you quit smoking? And almost all of them said, heck no. If they want to quit smoking, they don't care what it takes. They would gladly take it because quitting smoking is so hard and so frustrating. Now, as far as <clears throat> using the antidepressant, well, smoking is a high-frequency behavior, and it's coupled with oral and sensory gratification. So it's a tough thing to get people to stop doing. For some people, the aroma of the burning tobacco is rewarding to people who enjoy smoking. And then coupled with the physiological effects of the nicotine in the blood, and it's a highly rewarding behavior. According to doctors, it's thought that Zyban affects the brain's reward circuits and decreases one's desire to smoke. Now, I should say Zyban, Wellbutrin, Bupropion, you know, they're all the same thing. Also, smoking might be used as a way of treating one's own anxiety. And by treating someone's underlying worries with medication, he or she might feel com less compelled to light up. But really, what we know about why Wilbitrin or Zyban, Bupropion helps people quit smoking, nicotine works on norepinephrine and dopamine, so does Wellbutrin. And that's why it's working on the same pathways in the brain that nicotine is working on. Therefore, smoking is less rewarding because the Wellbutrin is already sort of occupying those pathways. Yet you don't go into withdrawal and it becomes easier to cut down and quit. I think it should be done gradually. I don't agree with smoking cessation regimens to say, you know, you set a quit date and stick to it. Yes, you should have a goal and try to stick to it. But when it comes to using well between Zyban, whatever you want to call it, it should be done at your own pace. When you feel the drug making it easier to resist the urges to smoke, when you see that that pack you went through in a day is now lasting you three, four, five days, that's your clue that the medication is helping and if you put some of your own effort into it, it should become easier to quit. Now, another use for antidepressants is irritable bowel syndrome and bedwetting. Tricyclic antidepressants, uh, Elevil, Tofranil, Pamelor, and Norpramin, they, um, they have multiple receptors that they affect throughout not just the central nervous system, but also the gastrointestinal tract. So these medications can be used to treat irritable bowel syndrome. Now, imipramine, in particular, one specific tricyclic, is also used for bedwetting. Um, it can affect the bladder muscles uh, by uh, increasing their tone, tightening things up a little bit, making it uh, more likely that there's a little bit of hesitation, giving someone time to get to the bathroom before wetting the bed. <clears throat> um, but I, th I think whereas this used to be used in children bed wet quite a bit more in the past, I'm not so sure it's that popular now. 
Now, the article talks about using SSRIs for certain learning disabilities, learning and memory being another use. Uh, those that are related to learning in the brain's upper right hemisphere, that's the area associated with visual-spatial skills, direction, and attention. Uh, in particular, the SSRIs can bring about remarkable changes in some children, in some young adults, and probably in adults as well. Um, this is not one of the more popular off-label uses of antidepressants, but uh, I certainly think a smaller number of patients benefit from them for that reason. Um, and so there you have it. Antidepressants are quite versatile drugs. can do a lot more for patients besides just treating anxiety and depression. Hopefully that will explain to those of you who've been given those drugs in the past why or people you know who are taking them. And with that, it's time to wrap up tonight's show. Hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week until we get together next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio.